Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. by the way. Why don't we say Merry Christmas? That's awesome. We don't get often to say that. Once a year we can say Merry Christmas. And uh, I love Christmas. I don't know about you, but I just absolutely love Christmas. And uh, um, especially the kids. Um, I was so amped up at the beginning of this week about Christmas. And uh, then my energy level went. <laughs> but I was so excited about Christmas this year. And uh, just the fun of it, of, of buying presents. I just love everything about Christmas. The carols, the lights, the, the pageantry. I, I love it all. I really do. And uh, I just, I think sometimes um, we as a church need a good excuse to, to have a good party. And uh, I hope Christmas and Easter can be those times. Uh, the Jewish calendar often had parties and had wonderful events and uh, Passover is one of them. We're going to read a little bit about Passover today. You know, Passover was a big deal in the Jewish community and we read that in the scripture where uh, <clears throat> Jesus comes to the temple. Last week, uh, Tyler mentioned in his message, as a matter of fact, his two points were God's story and then our story and how God's story becomes our story. And you can read the Bible in a number of different ways. Often we look at the Bible and we look for those little nuggets of truth that we can take and add to our wisdom and our knowledge. We kind of put those things in little short uh, scriptures sometimes. We fill calendars with them. You know, the little nuggets of truth that we find in scriptures. We can read the Bible for living words, for redemptive words, things that when we are searching in our heart for something or, or looking for direction, or looking for forgiveness or redemption, we find those living words in the Bible that can really bring about heart changes in us. And then there's a way of looking at story and reading it as a story. As a matter of fact, in college, my Biblic class consisted of looking at the Bible as a story, the story of God. And again, Tyler mentioned last week, the story always points to God as the hero. So that's the way I want to approach this scripture this morning as a story and look at it as a story and how does this story fit into ours? How does it make God the hero of the story? It's interesting because this scripture is unique in the sense that Luke is a part of the synoptic gospels. When I say synoptic gospels, I'm referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the three gospels that they believe were taken from uh, very similar material, have a very similar source. And if you read through them chronologically, they match a lot. And they have a lot of the same stories. However, each one of the gospels chooses to add a unique scripture or a unique story along the way. And that's what this story is in Luke. There is no other gospel that records Jesus from a baby until he's 30 years old and doing his ministry. And here he is, 12 years old. We get this little glimpse of Jesus at 12 years old 
in the temple. So my question comes, why, why did Luke decide to include this in Scripture? Why is this put here? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to argue the validity of this Scripture, but it's really interesting to me because the other place and the other source that they have found this Scripture in is in the Apocrypha. In a book called the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and that book mainly covers Jesus' life from a, a toddler, basically, up to 12 years old. It ends, that book, the way I understand, ends with this story. And it's interesting because this story in Luke is recorded almost exactly the same way that story is recorded in the Apocrypha. Luke brackets this, and you can see in Luke's writing, the, the scholars can see in Luke's writing, that this is a, a different even pattern of writing than what Luke normally did. And he brackets this with the two scriptures that come with the favor of God and, 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 and Jesus growing up in, in Luke 2.40. If you have your Bibles open, we're just going to cover pretty well Luke chapter 2. It says, the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and favor of the God was upon him. And then it skips down to Luke 2.52, which was read for you. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and in human favor. So he brackets these two with the growing up of Jesus. So why does Luke include the story? Why is it here? Could it be here to show that Jesus was raised in the traditions of, of Judaism? That she, Jesus was given the traditional education of a Jewish young scholar? Every young child, especially male child, was the ambition was to raise that child to be a rabbi. The ambition was to, to see them be a teacher of the law. So, in the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Torah, it says this. I found this in a, a, on a website called Covered in the Dust of the Rabbi, and I found it in other websites as well. So this is what the Mishnah says. At five years old, one is fit for Scripture. At ten years old, the Mishnah, the oral Torah interpretations... At thirteen, for the fulfillment of the commandments. At fifteen, the Talmud making rabbinic interpretations. At 18, the bridal chamber. At 20, the pursuit of a vocation. At 30, for authority. At 30, you are able to teach others. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' life kind of mirrors this. As a matter of fact, uh, just reading a little deeper, um, they would begin as young as five years old in elementary school. It was taught by a local rabbi. By the time they were done, by the time they were 12, 13 years old, or excuse me, about 10 years old, they would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. The books of Moses, the Torah, what we call the first five books of our Bible. They have them memorized. They, not everybody had a Bible, so it was very important for them to memorize the base scriptures. Then they would move into a deeper study. They would move into the Mishnah, what the interpretation of these scriptures mean. And they would study all these different rabbis of what these rabbis said this meant. And they would move into the prophets. 
and the teachers and those kind of things, the, 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 the poetic gospel or parts of the Old Testament. At this point, most students and certainly the girls stayed at home to help the family in case of, and in the case of boys to learn the family trade. It is at this point that a boy would participate in his first Passover in Jerusalem, a ceremony that would probably forms the background of today's bar mitzvahs in the Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish family. Is that me, Josh? Or is it just... I'm full of electricity this morning. Whatever that means. Jesus' excellent questions for the teachers in the temple at his first Passover indicate the study he has done. He goes on to say, though little is stated about his childhood, we know that he grew up and he, he at least came to this stage of education. And, and there's some other uh, theologians and, and commentaries that would debunk this whole thing, that there was some kind of a system. And that's fine. I'm not here to argue that. But the thing that's really interesting to me is that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. And yet, annually, every year, they made the trip to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, this may have been Jesus' first Passover. He may have never made this trip before. We don't know. But this was at least a special Passover because of what takes place. He stays behind. So we know that he has at least graduated to this level of first Passover, most likely. And we see the concern that his parents have to raise him right. Now, I don't know about you, but if God gave me the Son of God to raise, I, I might try to make sure he had a really good education, or at least do my best at that, right? And his parents are very faithful. They're doing the right thing with Jesus. Is that why Luke has included this in the scripture? I don't know. I think there might be something a little more to it than that. Perhaps Luke has included this story uh, in, here in Luke 2 to show the tie and the tension between Jesus' humanity and deity. Have you ever thought about, about that? I mean, every Christmas, I just get overly amazed at the fact that God squished himself into a seven-pound little baby. How did he fit? The God of the universe comes into a baby. Little baby. Now, I don't know. I, I happen to have a first-hand witness of what it's like to have boys around the age of 12, a 13 and a 14-year-old in my home. And it's so interesting, my wife was just saying this morning on the way to church, she goes, one of the things that strikes me in the story is how insensitive Jesus is to his parents who've been searching for three days, and he's like, why are you looking for me, you know? My boys, they can get so focused on something, they just, even if they're in the same room, they're gone, you know? It's said that a, a 12, 13, 14-year-old, their brain is only online about half of the time. And it's so funny because we can give them, if you give them too much instruction at this age, hey, go to your room, clean up your room, and make sure your bed is made, and, you know, those stinky socks, make sure you put them in the, in the, the dirty wash. 
you can guarantee out of those four instructions they'll get one done. Because it's only here. They're, they're focused on something else. And here's Jesus. It is a beautiful picture because the Passover just happened, right? Passover, one of the busiest times in the temple. They've brought the lambs. They've done their celebration. Everything is over. The party's over, kind of like yesterday. The wrapping paper, steel string. You know, you find a few little pieces of tape every once in a while on the other room floor. At least we do. You know, the party's over. There's still a little bit of stuff around the edges. But the temple's quiet. And the daily life of the teaching begins again. And Jesus is curious. He's interested. He walks in. He's beginning to look for things. He's asking questions. I don't know if you guys remember, if you've been around boys and girls at this age, there's a lot of questions. And most of them begin with the word W-H-Y. Why? Why do we have to do that, Mom? Classic one. Why do I have to take a shower, Mom? Here's Jesus. Who feeds him, by the way? Where does he get food? Well, I'll tell you, 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, they have no problem finding food. And do they care where they sleep? Do they care about a change of clothes in the shower? Jesus is three days in the temple. One day journey out, one day journey back, and one day searching. And his parents are exasperated, and they come to him. And what's his answer to them? Why are you looking for me? Duh. Didn't you know I'd be here? This is what interests me, Mom and Dad. This is my father's house. Why would I not be here? Why doesn't this make sense to you? Why would you go look at anybody else's place? And the why questions are there. I don't think Jesus was disrespectful. But he was a little bit... It's interesting because my, my son came to me, and I love the questions, and I think that's one of the things that, that I learned through the study this week is Jewish culture really honors its children and education for their children. It's their number one thing. It's their highest goal is to educate their children especially in Torah. It was very important to them. And so they would include these 12, 13-year-olds in their adult discussions. This was not unusual for a child to sit amongst scholars in the temple and ask questions. It's not something strange. That's, where their, that's not where their amazement came from. And that's awesome. So my son asked me a question while I was studying for this, he said, why did Jesus have to learn? Why did Jesus have to study? He's God. Right? Didn't he just know? And that's the other thing that amazes me, just like Jesus coming into a baby, submitting himself, God, into a baby. God also submitted himself to a body of a 12-year-old, a mind of a 12-year-old. Jesus had to learn to talk just like every other baby. He didn't come out of the womb and saying, there was once a man who went out to spread seas. You know, that, that's not how he came out. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to read. 
He had to learn all these things. It's a very human person. And I think we see in the scripture the limitation of Jesus of a 12-year-old mind, 12-year-old emotions, 12-year-old will coming out. But Luke also paints the deity side of him. I mean, the fact that people were amazed at what he was saying. They were, they were totally amazed. It says, and, and, and they who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He wasn't just asking questions. He was giving answers. Was it because he was 12 years old? Perhaps, but I think it goes deeper than that. Tradition tells us that when a rabbi would speak, he would speak, and generally he would give the information that's already been known through another rabbi. So the arguments often were different schools of thought of rabbis. There was no new thought, so to speak, Every once in a while, there would be a rabbi who would branch out and say, well, I think they're all wrong, and this is what I believe. Okay? But Jesus was a different teacher. We're told just two chapters later, in Luke chapter 4, it states this, he went down to Capernaum and to the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. Not only a scholarly authority, but with a divine authority. And I even think here at 12 years old, I think there were some real pregnated pauses as Jesus spoke. There was questions that the teachers of the law sat back and went, What? I don't get it. Or, wow, I never thought of it that way. This is the divineness of Jesus coming out. Despite his 12-year-old mind, despite his 12-year-old body, out comes the divine. He can't hide it. I believe he made them with his teaching, with his words, his understanding. <clears throat> the other interesting verse in this is when he talks to his parents and he tells them what's going on. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? But they don't understand what he said to them, it says in verse 50. But they did not understand what he said to them. What does that mean? They forget he was God all of a sudden and that his real father was the father in heaven? I mean, I think after 12 years of living with the Son of God, you know, that may wear off a bit, but I don't think there was a day that they didn't sit there and look at Jesus and say, He's the Son of God. And I don't think they missed the connection between Him and His Heavenly Father at all. I don't think they missed the fact that He needed to be in the temple. It made sense to them when they found Him there, oh, yeah. You're right. Duh, of course you would be here. This is what interests you. This is what is a part of who you are. I get it. So what did they miss? What didn't they understand in this? I don't know. I'm still quite asking that question in my own self. But I think there is something very divine in this that they just didn't quite know how it mixed or understood it. 
part of me wonders, did they wonder if they should leave Jesus in Jerusalem to continue his education? Normally you didn't seek a rabbi until you were 15 years old. Was he ready for that? Should we take him back home? What should we do with him? Well, the story tells us what they decided to do. Even though they didn't quite conceive and understand all this, they decided, hey, Jesus, you're coming back home with us. And there's this beautiful verse, and, and it says in verse 51, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured these things in her heart. Okay, let's get this. The Son of God comes into a body of a 12-year-old, is in the body of a 12-year-old, is a 12-year-old. Make sure I make that clear. It's one and the same. And he, though he made the universe, chooses to obey his parents and go down to Nazareth and learn a trade. We know he became a carpenter. We know that he fulfilled his father's trade. So we know he didn't go on to study underneath a rabbi. He probably did the next level of education and learned his trade along with his father. And get this, he leaves his father's business in Jerusalem to join his father's business in Nazareth. Let's not miss that. There's a whole sermon probably on authority there, and I'm not going to touch that. But that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. There's this beautiful picture, a parallel scripture with this in, it's actually part of the lectionary in, in 1 Samuel, uh, talking about Samuel worshiping and, and serving before the Lord at Shiloh. And I'm going to touch a little bit more on that a little deeper, a little later. But one of the things that I think gives me a good picture, I'm very visual, I like pictures, of the mixture of the divine and the human is in Samuel. And, and the parallels between Jesus and Samuel are a lot. Uh, miracle births for both of them. Both mothers create this song. Uh, and you read the songs, they're very similar in nature. Uh, you have them serving before the Lord. Uh, growing up in stature, and these verses are almost exact of, of how they grew up and in the favor of the Lord and the people. But here... Samuel is serving before the Lord, and it says he's wearing a linen ephod. It's basically a priestly garment. He is, at a young age, considered a priest before the Lord. He's able to go before the Lord in the tabernacle. He's able to go in there as a priest. He's wearing a priestly garment. But it says also that his mother, his mama, makes him a robe every year and brings it down to him. So he has a robe to wear. Isn't that beautiful? The picture between the holy, clothed in holiness, and clothed in the common, the love of a mother, the care of a mother, and the robe. It's a beautiful picture, and I see that tension here. I think Luke does a beautiful picture of that tension between the two. Is that why he writes this? Is that why this is included so that we can see the humanity and the godliness, or the godness of Jesus. 
I think so in some ways, but is that really the depth of this? Is that when we really look at the scripture, is that the deepest part of it? Is that really what we need to glean from this today? So I don't know about you, but I can relate to that in some ways, but I've never been God. I don't know what it's like to be God in a 12-year-old body. I was a 12-year-old in a 12-year-old body. I, I was never that. How does that story fit mine? Well, I think we dive a little deeper into this. Is Luke including this story to show that God is doing a new thing? That what God is doing here is something new. In the midst of something old, a temple that has been built for years, a temple that has represented the presence of God for years, now Jesus is coming new. It's interesting because this is where the parallel of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 and verse 26 really comes together. This is the place because Eli, who is the priest before the Lord, Eli, who is the judge, who is ruling over Israel, his sons are wicked and evil kids. They're called scoundrels. The writer even says it was God's will to kill them. They were going to be wiped off the scene. But even before they are killed, even while they're doing their defaming of God's name through sacrifices and through sleeping with the women at the tabernacle, all these things, even though they were doing that, God begins to raise up a young man by the name of Samuel. Right under the priest's nose, right under Eli's nose, which is exactly what Eli wants in some ways. He's okay with it. He warns his children, but they don't obey him. They don't listen to him. And here's the new coming in. And it's so evident in the language of the Scripture. In verse 18, it says, but Samuel. After describing these evil deeds, it says, but Samuel. Here's your ray of hope. Here's your light. It goes on with, in verse 29, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature in favor with who? The Lord and with people. God is preparing a new way, and he has put Samuel right there, ready for it, even before the old is gone. I had an interesting experience uh, last, about two weeks ago. We have some friends, yeah, actually we do have friends, but anyway, um, I have a couple friends who are uh, John and Catherine Troyer, and their four children came over to our house, and they're going to go into the mission field. So they're leaving, their plans are to leave December 30th if everything comes through for their visa. And they have this van, a Honda Odyssey, just like our van. And they come to our house, and one of the first things is like, hey, do you know anybody that needs a van? So I just changed out the timing belt on it. It runs really nice, blah, blah, blah. It's a really nice van. You know, I need to sell it and get rid of it, do something with it before I go off on the mission field. And we're like, oh, no, but we'll keep our eyes open. You know, we're okay. The next day, my wife is taking our little van, as we call it, to drop off a kid that came for Trevor's birthday party. And they're driving north of Strasburg, heading towards Bolivar. And she comes up to the sharp corner, and the van just goes, and she has to drive it off into a driveway. Thank God for the driveway, because that was a dangerous corner. There was a guardrail along, 
She would have had no place to pull off. God provided a way. She pulls off, sitting in the end of the driveway. She calls me up. I'm with some friends. I told you I have friends. <laughs> Amazingly. Um, she calls me up and says, Van quit. The power just stopped. So I'm sitting here. The fan's running. But I can't get it to go. And I said, is it running for sure? Well, I think so. So we'll turn it off so you can get started. She turns it off. No, it's dead. It's not even running. So we end up towing it to Mount Eaton to get it checked out. Monday we find out that it is the timing belt. And he says, look, I can tear it down and look into it to see if it is an interference and an engine. So if that belt slips, there's a good chance you don't have enough pressure in your <coughs> valve, not valves, pistons to run the engine. Guess who I call up? Hey, do you still have that van? <laughs> it's toast. Our little van's toast. It, it busted a valve somewhere. It's, it's not worth repairing. But God provided us a van before we even knew we needed one. It's so amazing to me in this story what we see. There is no doubt that Luke includes this in the story because of Samuel. He brings it into this. We see this tie between Jesus and the temple over and over again in Luke's gospel. We see it before these verses. Jesus is eight days old, is taken into the temple, right? To fulfill what is proper by the law. And he meets, what, Simon, Simeon and Hannah. And they testify to his divine nature and his call. In these verses, he's saying, this is my father's house. The temple is my father's house. Later on, he quotes and says, my house shall be a house of prayer in Luke 19, when he drives out the money changers and purifies the temple, so to speak. He even brings it into personal, I believe, in John 14. Very familiar scripture to many of us. In my father's house, are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, there you will be also. There you will come and dwell with me. The temple is moving from this building in which you find God at to Jesus. And it's so interesting to me because in the Old Testament, the tabernacle that was built in the Old Testament was right in the middle of the camp. And that's where the fire of God and the cloud of God gathered over. And God would meet with them in that tabernacle. When they built the temple, the holiness of the Lord came in. It shook the building. There was a part of that construction of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Nobody went in there except once a year one of the priests went in and they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he went in there and didn't do things right, he would die. The holiness of the Lord would slay him and they would have to pull him out. How many like that job? Makes being an electrician feel pretty easy, right? But in Ezekiel 10, we have an interesting scripture. There's this holy winnebago parked outside of the temple. You read it. 
you tell me what that thing is outside the temple. I'm going to call it a holy Winnebago because it had all kinds of wheels on it and cherubs in it. And it says, the glory of the Lord leaves the threshold of the temple, gets on this mobile home, and is driven out through the gates, eastern gate through the Kidron Valley. And the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And he begins to hang. And I find this really interesting because when Jesus is killed on Passover, which is his Passover, Jesus is killed on Passover, the temple, what rips? What rips in the temple? The curtain. The curtain between the Holy of Holies. This holy sanctuary, the curtain is ripped open. And guess what? It's exposed for what it is, an empty, cold room. The priests that were serving that day, they didn't die. The holiness didn't come out and slay them like it would have in the Old Testament because the glory of God had left. But my friends, on this Passover, the glory of the Lord is standing in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. The glory, the presence of God is there. It is evident in His divine power. And Jesus continues to come to the temple, continues to call people to the temple, the place in which you can find healing. Keeps to come. Luke is using this story along with other stories in the Old Testament of the old to the new. Not unlike Samuel, the direction that Israel and his religious leaders were going had eliminated God in his will. Jesus, the Samuel in the, of the past, Jesus had come to begin a new thing. He was teaching with authority, living with a devotion to his heavenly Father. He was moving away from his earthly parents and ushering in the kingdom of God. Is this the reason that Luke includes this story here? Is this the reason that we have Jesus in the temple at 12 years old in Luke chapter 2? I think it's a very good reason, and I actually think this is probably the most valid reason and the closest interpretation, but I would like to take it a little bit further. I would like to stretch a little bit of the Scripture. I'd like to bring it into something a little different than just Jesus being there, the new ushering in out of the old. You see, Jesus is present in the temple for the third time as God's special son. This is the third time in a row that this scripture brings Jesus into the temple and presents him to the people as a divine intervention for them. This is God's one and only son. And this is declaring the scripture, is declaring this. God continues to put his seal on Jesus just like he did with the words of Simeon and Hannah. Simeon says, For my eyes have seen your salvation in verse 30. And it talks about Hannah. At that moment she came and began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking what? Looking for the redemption of Israel. Salvation. Redemption. Through God's Son. The power of God was there to bring true salvation. 
to bring true redemption. The temple is a religious center, not only for teaching of God, but for forgiveness. Not thought, forget why God set the temple up. It was a fine relationship with him. It was a place in which you could go and atone for your sin. And what a beautiful picture at Passover where they took the perfect lamb and they slayed it. And they celebrated Passover, which takes us back to Egypt. When the Israelites were escaping from Egypt, God sent a plague to kill all the firstborn. And those who killed a lamb and spread the blood over the doorpost of their home would save their firstborn child. That's what Jesus represents. He's in our place. He's in our stead. It's his blood that atones for our sin. The temple is always important to Jesus, not just because of the political religious value. It is God's house. It is his tabernacle. It is dwelling. It is his presence. It's the cloud. It's the flame. It's, it's the place in which Jesus comes to dwell with us. Jesus is the glory of God present. The Lamb of God, our redemption, our salvation. The temple of God, the dwelling where we can abide. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent his one and only. God sent his best. I know a boy who sat in his parents' living room, tears streaming down his cheeks, watching a car pull out of a driveway. That car contained his brother and his sister. And they were heading off to an amusement park and left him behind because he was too young. He thought, if I get up early enough, they'll take me along. But they didn't. He was too young. And I will never forget, I mean, he will never forget, I'll never forget how I felt abandoned by that. Now it makes total sense to me, but as a youth, I forget. I don't even know how old I was, probably 10 to 12 years old. That was heartbreaking to me. My older sibling was five years older than I. And they went off and left me alone. And I used to hang with this youth group all the time. When they came over to our house, which was often, I was a part of them. They wouldn't mind. Surely you can take me. They didn't. Now, I already admitted I was the youngest child, five years younger. I'll own that I was spoiled. Spoiling is not really a bad way to raise a kid, always. But I reveled in the fact that I was special, that I was different. And yes, I probably was treated with some favor from my family. But that equated love to me. I don't know about you. Maybe that's not your experience. But you know, one of the things I love about being married to Jean, I'm the one and only. 
I hope that's a good thing, not that she's stuck with me, because she's a very faithful wife. She's very dedicated to me. And she's my one and only. There's a little rub sometimes when, you know, she doesn't give me the attention I think a one and only should receive, you know. That's a little bit of that spoiledness coming in. Or when I know I haven't given her the attention I should as my one and only. We don't get it perfect. We don't get it right. But isn't it wrong to want to be the one and only? Is it selfish of us? Maybe you don't have that feeling, but I, I question that. Do, do, is it selfish for me to want to be one and only? Is there room in the kingdom of God for us who want to be the one and only ones? Because I'd really like to be that with God. Can I just confess? I love the idea that, you know, I would be God's one and only. Wouldn't that be cruel? Just that favorite of God. Sorry for you guys, because I'm his one and only. No, that's not how it works, right? What does it? Am I God's one and only? I am. I am God's one and only. The reason I know that is he traded his one and only for me. And I don't care who you are. If I was the only person that would come into right relationship to, with God through Jesus Christ, he still would have sent his son for me. For me. Now, what's interesting about this one and only is it doesn't make me selfish. It doesn't make me proud. It's the opposite. It makes me humble. Listen to these words from Colossians 3.12. And again, this was a scripture that was part of our lectionary. It begins, as God's chosen one. That's us. As God's chosen one, holy and beloved. I happen to preach next week, too. So Ephesians 1, 4 through 8 states this, and it will be part of my sermon next week. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship, daughtership through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one, capitalized, he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in acceptance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God traded his one and only for me. He traded his one and only for you. The reason Luke took time to write out the life of Jesus Christ and include the story we read now is so that you would know that Jesus is God's one and only Son who has come as the Passover Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came as a baby, a boy, a man, to be your salvation and redemption. He came so that you 
can be in relationship with God. The presence of God is in the holy temple. That holy temple is his church today, the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. I know this sermon sounds very individualistic, me and God. And it is. My friends, until you realize how precious you are to God, you will not find yourself being able to live in community well. You will not be able to love others until you know how much God loves you. The best days that I love my wife is when I understand how much my God loves me. This is us. We, the church, are God's one. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your presence here. Lord God, you did not leave us alone. You came to our temple. You came to our world. You brought the glory back. You brought the hope back. You brought the life back. Lord, you come in and you are our one and only. Lord, we cannot make it without you. We can do nothing without you. It is only through you that we can live. Salvation only comes through you. God, thank you so much for coming as a baby, dwelling amongst us as a 12-year-old as a 30-year-old. Loving us enough at age 33 to walk the path of suffering so that we could have redemption and healing, joy, peace, and hope, and holiness and glory. Thank you, Jesus, for being our one and only. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.